0: Hello, I'm Chuck Wolf and this is the Emotion Roadmap. Today I am featuring excerpts from two previous shows featuring what I believe are outstanding achievements by women. This is to celebrate Women's History Month in March 2023. The first excerpt is a wonderful story of a young woman, Julia McNally, and her journey as a Peace Corps volunteer to Africa. After serving, Julia decided she wanted to do more for girls and women in the country of Togo. Her mom, Wendy Swift, a good friend, uh, decided to to get involved and to help. And the result was Pathways Togo, an ongoing venture that is changing girls' and women's lives in a very positive way. You're going to hear from both Wendy and from Julia. The second excerpt is my colleague and friend Helen Reese, famous for her transformational work in empathy. She's providing empathy to the world. She specialized initially in healthcare. She is a psychiatrist, a professor at Harvard Medical School, and works at Mass General and has her own company called Empathetics. Helen is changing the way medical professionals work with each other and with patients. The results are dramatic. This conversation, we explore her book, her work, and offer key tips to all of you who want to be more empathetic. So let's begin.
1: Hi, this is Chuck Wolf, and you're listening to the Emotion Roadmap. Take the wheel and control how you feel. And today I'm very excited to have with me uh, Julia McNally and Wendy Swift, and we're going to be talking about a group called Pathways Togo, Educating Women, Empowering the World. That's the byline underneath this. And it's a very exciting experience in helping people to grow in Africa, and I'm going to be asking Julia to tell us about it in just a moment. First, let me tell you a little bit about Julia McNally. She's a founding director for Pathways Togo. In April 2010, Julia completed her service as a Peace Corps volunteer in Togo where she managed the Karen Wade Girls Scholarship Program, developed curriculum for an environmental education initiative implemented in nine rural primary schools and co-wrote a nonprofit management guide. Prior to her Togo assignment, Julia served in the Peace Corps in Madagascar, teaching elementary school students and facilitating the creation of a Farmers Association. Julia is currently working in the Housing Division of the Legal Aid Society in the Bronx and lives with her husband, Charles, and their son, Charlie, in Sunnyside, New York. Wendy Swift, is the president of the organization Wendy has worked in the field of education for over 20 years including teaching at the elementary school high school and university levels as well as facilitating writing workshops for women and teens a prolific writer Wendy has published articles and essays in the Connecticut Academy of Science and Engineering Bulletin, Adirondack Explorer and Long Island Woman. She currently lives with her husband in Farmington Connecticut Wendy also happens to be Julia's mother. So in beginning to talk about Pathways Togo, Julia, I'd like you, if you could, just tell us a little bit about your connection to the organization and what the organization is about and how it goes about educating women and empowering the world.
2: Sure. Thank you. Um, So, Pathways Togo very simply was created to provide educational opportunities for young women living in Togo, West Africa. Uh, When I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Togo, as you mentioned, one of the projects I worked on was the Karen Wade Scholarship Program. It's a women's scholarship program that was established to honor the memory of Karen Wade, a Peace Corps volunteer who passed away during her service. Uh, The local community as well as several generations of Peace Corps volunteers um, since Karin's passing in the early 90s had done an amazing job keeping the scholarship program going with basically no outside support, just Peace Corps volunteers putting together whatever extra spending money they had or asking friends and family for help to send girls to school. Uh, and when I was in Togo, I was so inspired by that work, by the passion that went into it, and also by the importance of that work in a country where the opportunities for women in terms of education and career and general equality in society were so much less than that available to men. I arrived in Togo after having spent 13 months in Madagascar, which is also, of course, a developing country. And just the difference from Madagascar to Togo in terms of the quality of life for women was really shocking to me in that I felt that in Togo, life was so much harder for women. Um, So getting involved with administering the Car and Way program was really a privilege. And it struck me that the program wasn't really able to plan strategically in any long-term sense because there was no steady source of funding since it was all just coming internally from one generation of Peace Corps volunteers to another. So while I was in Peace Corps in Togo, I started to plan and research how to lay the foundation for a nonprofit organization that could be incorporated in the U.S. to provide a steady source of funding for girls' scholarships in Togo. When I returned from the Peace Corps, I was fortunate to meet two other returned Peace Corps volunteers, uh, Kyra Turner Zagwakor and Lori Siegel Moss. Um, Very coincidentally, even though they had served several years before me, they had the same idea, to create a girls' scholarship program in Togo that would be sustainable, that would be culturally relevant, that would do important work, and that would be located and administered primarily in Togo. Um, So we got together and we came up with a program that would involve three main prongs, which are the scholarships themselves to the young women, a mentoring component, and life skills conferences, where the women would come together at a central location, receive their scholarships, and receive really concentrated training on some of the skills that they need, such as study skills and budgeting to succeed as students and later on as professionals.
1: Julia, can I ask you to talk a little bit about the state of women that you found there and what they were experiencing? And I know that it sounds like you—you know—you came, you saw, you—you you, you saw some need. You did some remarkable things, and, and, and it seems like a very short time. Um, but I, I doubt that many people have a sense of what these young women in these African villages in Togo were experiencing. You, could you talk a little bit about that and how hard it actually was to get people on board?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, aside from statistics, what's probably more meaningful to a lot of people is personal stories. So I can speak, you know, very personally to some of the young women that I befriended during my service um, who really so desperately wanted to receive an education that they would do anything that they could. So, for example, um, young women, you know, maybe 11, 12 years old, will wake up at 4 a.m., do their morning chores, then sit out on the street and sell essentially sort of like donuts made with uh, flour that they would deep fry, so sort of sell these on the street for the equivalence of a few cents each to make a little bit of money before school, then go to school, um, spend the entire day of school, come home, do chores all evening, and then stay up late studying under street lamps because many of these young women don't have electricity at home. So the amount of energy and time and passion that they would dedicate towards fulfilling something as basic as the need for an education was just so staggering and so touching to me. A young woman that my mother and I um, both met, because my mother visited me in Togo while I was there, um, for example, had said that she was so... Uh, dedicated towards staying in school year after year that she sold the one possession. She had a bicycle, which she actually had been gifted from a prior Peace Corps volunteer, but it was more important to her to be able to stay in school. So she sold her bicycle and then would just walk um, probably a good hour in each direction back and forth to get to school each day. I mean, the, the challenges are so enormous in terms of Our scholars not having, you know, without the scholarships, not having enough money to eat, Um, so they're going to school on an empty stomach. Not having schools near them in an accessible location, or the schools that are near them um, are not high enough quality to allow them to succeed. So sometimes they would go and stay with family or stay with nuns um, in a faraway location without having their support structure in place just so that they could be close to a school. And another huge challenge is culturally when there's limited resources to go around, families end up more often than not prioritizing sending boys to school ahead of sending girls to school because they see boys as having more potential um, in terms of earners in the future, whereas they see women as their potential is to be a future wife. Um, So there are these cultural barriers uh, that these women have to overcome as well, and as Peace Corps volunteers, we worked on trying to address these cultural barriers, but really the most effective way of doing so is to help women get an education and move into successful careers and lead by example and show that women can be well-educated, women
1: can be successful professionals. And Wendy, if I could ask you to jump in now uh, and talk a little bit about how, you know, your initial visit to Togo, um, your feelings about what Julia was doing, and also um, your role as president in this organization and what you're seeing and how you're experiencing being part of this organization.
3: Yes, thanks. Um, so, I did visit Julia in Togo for approximately 10 days, and though it was a very short visit, I really consider it something of a life-altering experience. I went with Ben, my husband and we arrived in Lomé, which is the capital city and we spent a few days there and then took a peace corps bus up to julia's village which is in the north of togo The village is mongo and um... it is true that while i was there i had the opportunity to meet this young woman that julia referred to who was doing wash and trying to earn money and sold her bicycle so she could go to school and she was extraordinarily bright and capable and when i met her and spoke with her, and of course she spoke several languages because she spoke English and French and her native languages, I realized that for as little as $100 a year, she could go to the university, and that just seemed so staggering when I thought about the cost of university education in the United States. As compared to the cost of a university education <coughs> in Togo, so what well, was really so little for my husband and I to give her $400, so she could f- complete four years of a college education. And this would have been near impossible for her if she didn't have the support from some someone else, or she would have not been able to stay in school, or had to scramble or do many different jobs in order to support herself if she tried to do that fully and totally on her own. So it was our joy, and also while I was there, I had an opportunity to meet some educators in the village. I had an opportunity. There were two young girls that were coming over to Julia's home to be tutored, and so I had a chance to work with them. Um, They were learning French and learning how to read and write in French, which is a national language. Um, but it's not the same language that many of these children and women are speaking at home. So right away they are bi if not trilingual um, which is really an amazing accomplishment. So after having spent the time there and visited Julia and saw the schools, I visited the schools, I talked to educators um, I, as an educator myself and having sent three girls to college in the United States, I just felt that There was very little that was more important to me than to find a way to support these very capable women in fulfilling their destinies as educated individuals. So I, of course, wanted to work with Julia in finding a way to see that accomplished. And when we came back to the United States and Julia um, began to do the legal work to um, gain nonprofit status, um, she needed a board, and she asked me if I could help and be on the board. Um, I also asked another friend of mine at that time if she would participate on the board, and so we began to form a board of individuals who would be able to um, get the organization started and um, find funding for it and launch it to being a fully functional organization that could support girls' education in Togo.
1: So, how long have you been on the board? Then, were you on it right away when it when it first formed? I was.
3: I've been on the board since, since inception, and um, my position at one point was vice president. Um, there was another woman who had the role of president, and she stepped down, and I assumed her role as president. But um, you know, I've been very active in fundraising, in publicity, uh, social media, um, and just doing everything i can to get the word out and also to bring in the funds that we need in order to sustain our organization
1: that's great and uh... just because people are going to who are listening to this are going to want to know um, if you can send your child uh... off to college and pay a hundred dollars a year for university I'm assuming it's not quite the same experience as what Julia you experienced when you went to college, because other pe- otherwise people are going to wonder. So, can we send our children over to Africa to go to school? <laughs> 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 so, can you talk a little bit about what university means there? Does it mean the same thing? How does it? How does a hundred dollars a year pay for university?
2: Well, that's a great question. Um, so we actually recently uh, decided to raise our university scholarships to $200 a year. And the reason for that is to provide more comprehensive support beyond just uh, the cost of tuition. There are two universities in Togo, um, one in the capital and one in Kara, which is located more towards the north of the country. Um, the experience is, is as you said, quite different than the experience um, of students in the US. But there are some basic similarities, uh, basically there's the need to pay for tuition, Um, the classes are quite crowded, it can be um, challenging for students to actually get all of the classes they need in four years, so we've also recently decided to commit to paying for our scholars to go for as many years as it takes for them to complete university, which in some cases can be closer to five. Um, Most students do have to, uh, or at least a large number of students, do have to travel um, to go to one of those two universities, so lodging is an expense. Um, Either they may be staying with family and paying a small amount of money to uh ask the price of food, they may be staying, as I said, with nuns. Sometimes um, convents allow young women to stay there um, in exchange for labor. That can be a challenging situation because our students also do need time to study. Um, and sometimes the convents do charge a small amount of money. Uh, or students may get together to rent a small apartment. Um, So that's one of the expenses. Books is also, um, similar to the U.S. University, a major expense. Uh, One thing that many um, students in Togo do is share books, which can be a good idea, but if there's too many students sharing books, of course, it's difficult for the each student to get enough time to really study and complete their work on time. So, when possible, um, we want to give our students the ability to purchase their own books or at least not have to share them with uh, too many other people. Um, And basics such as food can be an expense because, again, if students aren't living at home with their families, um, then they're, of course, going to need some money uh, for food. Even if they're working on this side, it might not cover all of those expenses. So, the reason why, again, we decided to um, give our students each a scholarship of $200 a year, which is still, of course, such a staggeringly low price compared to a year of college in the U.S., is so that our students really have what they need to succeed in terms of the time they need to focus on their studies, the books they need to be able to get their work done on time, a safe, secure place to live that's not requiring too much of them in terms of labor um, in exchange for uh, living space, um, and the money to be able to take all of the courses that they need uh, in order to graduate, in order to take the classes that they need to achieve their goals.
3: And, and the courses, by the way, the curriculum is not very different from what we might have as university curriculum. So students do take foreign languages. They may take English and French. They take the sciences, physics, and math. Um, and um, they take some history courses. So there is a really full curriculum of courses that students take and a choice of subjects that they may uh, decide to pursue. And in fact, one of our students, um, and that was something um, I wanted to talk about, that we have a scholar who was accepted to medical school in Cuba. And Julia, maybe you can just address that a little bit, that our students, we are preparing them after university To go on and have um, positions in Togo, but um, I think this is an example of an individual who demonstrates the potential of some of these girls and just needs the finances to be able to study abroad in Cuba, which of course involves um, uh, laptop computer, books for Cuba, lodging, um, I think, um, and the scholarship that we provide that will help pay for her. Um, her school fees there as well.
2: Yeah, um, the scholar's name is Yanu, and it's really an exceptional opportunity that speaks volumes to our scholar's unique potential um, and just th- how exceptional these young women really are, that she has been selected to study abroad um, to get a medical degree in Cuba where she'll have the opportunity to be exposed to um, much more advanced medical education than she otherwise would. Um, And to just put this in some perspective, I mean, 10, 15 years ago, it was almost impossible to find a professional woman in Togo. So to have someone who is in training to become a doctor is really just such an amazing accomplishment. We cannot be prouder of her. Um, And one thing that we're really focused on right now from a fundraising perspective is giving her the support that she needs. So as my mother mentioned, we'd like to give her the $200 that we provide all of our scholars that she can use um, for academic-related expenses in Cuba, and also a laptop. The laptop that um, she wants to buy only costs uh, $305, so we're not talking about a major expense by any means, but it's such a crucial thing um, in a more developed country for her to be able to use and also just have the everyday facility with that we take for granted in the Western world that will be so key to her success. Um, so we're really encouraging um, people in our community to uh, recognize what an exceptional opportunity this is for her, um, and if they are in a position to contribute anything towards making this goal uh, come true for her uh, to, you know, get online and donate, Um, and I'm sure Chuck will be giving our information about how people can do that.
1: Well, I, I was going to ask you, I think probably people have heard enough at this point. Um, just, to, just if you want to, Julia, just to talk about, I know on the website it encourages people not only to give their money but also to take a, an active role. If people are listening, um, other women or men um, who might have an interest in helping to advance the cause of these young women in Togo, uh, how, how do they get involved? How, what is the best way to make contact with you or the board or anyone else that uh, allows them to either volunteer their time or their money? Either
2: one. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, our website is www.pathwaystogo.com. That org. It's all one word, um, and we do We encourage people to get involved financially. We encourage people to get involved on a volunteer level, and we've had people from the community, people who are touched by our work, um, really help contribute by holding fundraising events, by reaching out to their friends and family. We have young one young woman who's in the process of making bracelets to sell for a fundraiser, someone else who took the initiative to have a scarf exchange at her apartment where people come and um, pay, you know, 5 or $10 in exchange scarves. Everyone goes home with some new accessories. It's a lot of fun and such an easy meaningful way to support uh, young women in Togo. Um, So there's all different kinds of opportunities for people to get involved directly or recruit friends or family members in this mission. Um, And if people want to contact me, um, I can be reached at jmcnally at pathwaystogo.org and I'll spell it out. It's jmcnally at pathwaystogo, which is just p-a-t-h-w-a-y-s. Dot org. Um, and I would be more than happy to hear from anyone who is interested in getting involved or just has questions and would like to learn more about our work.
1: And Wendy, I'm sure the same goes for you as far as being on that's the board. That's right. And I'm w
3: swift at pathwaystogo.org and swift, S W I F T. Um, and you know, Chuck, one of the things too that um, just as sort of uh, more evidence about um, why people should care because one of the points that sometimes comes to my attention is that people feel like well i mean there's so much need here in the united states you know why should i be concerned with girls that live halfway around the world in this tiny little country of togo But i really want to um... i really want to impress upon individuals that of course our world is very small and that um, beyond the basic moral imperative that I believe is important to do for others where and when one can, it's also very clear to me that um, educating women helps to alleviate not only poverty but disease and even terrorism and extremism because um, when girls have an education and they pass it on to their children and they encourage their children to read and learn more about the world around them and to have a better understanding, I believe it promotes a more peaceful global environment.
0: That concludes the segment that was uh, dedicated to featuring Pathways Togo, Julia and Wendy. And if you have an interest in learning more about Pathways Togo, You can put PathwaysTogo.org into the browser that you might be using and look it up and find out more about them. You can find out how you can donate if you like or also to volunteer in different ways. So I hope you enjoyed that segment. The next one is going to feature again my colleague and friend Helen Reese. You're listening to WPKN 89.5 FM. This is the Emotion Roadmap. Take the wheel and control how you feel. And this is Chuck Wolf. And today I'm going to be talking to Helen Reese, who is uh, both a colleague and friend, and also one of the um, world's foremost experts on a topic of empathy. And a lot of people think that they know what empathy is, and some of you may and may not. Uh, But we're going to hear what the definitions are, both how it works in real life, and also um, recently we were able to measure empathy, and we're going to hear something about that as well. But Helen's written a new book. It's called The Empathy Effect. She's been doing quite a bit of work in the healthcare world and has been very successful, including having TED Talks and uh, has been all around the world teaching what she's learning about empathy to healthcare professionals and now to others because it seems like there's quite a bit of interest in, in people learning more about empathy and For all kinds of reasons, for in terms of your, your family life and your professional life, whether you're a worker in an organization or a leader of that organization, empathy can make an enormous difference in your ability to succeed. Your relationships with other people are highly dependent on your ability to understand and to use empathy. And so I'm going to just say a little bit about Helen, and then we're going to um, start our interview. So Helen is a a medical doctor and is is the Associate Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and Director of the Empathy and Relational Science Program at Massachusetts General Hospital. She's a core member of the Consortium for Research on Emotional Intelligence and Organizations. That's where I know Helen from, where I'm a member also. And she's the founder and chief scientist of Empathetics Incorporated. Dr. Reese developed an empathy training approach based on research in the neurobiology and physiology of empathy. So with that, um, I want to just introduce now Helen, my colleague and friend, and ask her, if you would, Helen, if you could just start out about talking about how this research came to be and how you define empathy. Because, again, I I know a number of people have in their mind what they think empathy is, um, but you have a very specific definition. I wonder if you'd share it and talk a little bit about how you got involved in doing this work.
4: Thank you, Chuck. It's a pleasure to be with you today. So I, as a psychiatrist uh, who's been working with patients for decades, I um, have always appreciated and um, felt that empathy is a uh, significant and uh, imperative quality between not just psychiatrists and patients, but all doctors and patients. And that's been informed, you know, in my psychiatric training. There have been many studies that show that there's really no change that's enduring and lasting unless a person feels understood. The definition of empathy that has emerged uh, from, you know, many different disciplines is feeling with others as opposed to sympathy, which is feeling bad for others. So the difference between feeling bad for and feeling with is very important because when we feel bad for others, we're sort of in a more powerful position to be feeling bad for somebody else. But when we're feeling with others, we're on an equal plane. And, Through the advent of neuroscience, many scientists have been able to look at what happens in the brain, and empathy has become much more understandable since we've been able to see that both um, emotional centers light up in the brain when people are witnessing the suffering of others, and also the cognitive or thinking parts of our brain, they light up as well. And this is because empathy is just not all about feelings. It's feeling with people, but it's also um, our ability to take their perspective and to see the world through their eyes and to use our imagination and curiosity to get there. And all of this works together to help us form an empathic response.
0: Well, you mentioned in your uh, in in the book, and I do want to make a point to people that while there is some science in the book, it's really written for everybody to be able to read. And if you're intrigued a bit about the science too, there's some science that explains which brain center is actually lighting up when different things are happening. But one of the things I thought was a really interesting study was uh, you you cited was Tanya Singer's work and the idea that uh, when you um, give people a shock of some sorts, and I guess it was with a female group originally, you can actually measure that. Could you talk a little bit about the idea about how you measure it and what happened in that study?
4: Yes. Uh, Tanya Singer was the first uh, neuroscientist to actually look at the brain, both when people were experiencing pain and also when they received a signal that someone they loved was in pain. So she was looking both at self-pain and other pain, and she was trying to see, you know, what is the difference, like when when we um, feel an electric shock or when we know that our partner or spouse or loved one has received a shock. And in a very brilliant study, she showed that whether we are receiving the pain or witnessing or knowing other people we love are in pain, very similar brain centers light up. And she concluded that we are wired to appreciate the other person's pain as if we're feeling it ourselves, but to a lesser degree, so that we have empathy for them, so that we know what it feels like. And then most of the time we are motivated to help through something called empathic concern. And sometimes we know, you know, people are suffering and we feel concerned, but we don't actually take the time to do something about it. So empathy is really, you know, the perception of something happening to somebody else and feeling it to some degree, um, which usually motivates a response and that response can be called compassion
1: well, I think it's
0: really interesting that when you say the words you are it's not just you're feeling bad for somebody, but you're feeling with them and that demonstrates it, I think, because you actually see you can actually record physiological responses that measure somebody actually being impacted, having some feelings of pain themselves, not to the same degree, but when a loved one is being is, is being shocked and that that the idea of feeling with others, I think that demonstrates it in my mind.
4: That's right, Chuck. So when we say, I feel your pain, it's not just, um, uh, you know, it's not just a slogan or a matter of words. We actually, you know, flinch when we see somebody get their hand caught in a car door, even though nothing has touched us. And we're moved by people's emotions. So we really are wired to be in synchrony with other people.
0: Now, what I thought was interesting about the study, I don't want to dwell on it except to say this. I noticed that she did this with females, and she didn't have the male partners um, just uh, tied up to the uh, physiological um, equipment to measure their responses when the females got shocked. And I wonder if the hypothesis with the males wouldn't really have the same kind of, they wouldn't be wired the same way. And so my comment is, is, is there a gender difference around this?
4: Actually, there is. And it's been shown in many studies. And when I spoke with Tanya Singer, she said that, you know, she had funding to do this study. And she knew that women, you know, were more likely to, you know, experience and feel the pain. And so she wanted to demonstrate it with a with a population where she was pretty (laughs) sure she would get results. (laughs) But it works both ways.
0: Okay. I, I, I also want to talk as we go through the, the show together about, uh, you know, occasionally about particular techniques that people can use themselves. And one of the other, one of the first techniques that shows up is this idea that you share in the book about um, ABC. And if you could talk a little bit about that technique. So I like in my show to make sure people have some takeaways, things that they can actually do as a result of listening that help make their lives a little bit easier.
4: Sure. So, you know, one of the things that we have to always keep in mind is that, you know, we don't always have empathy when people are, you know, um, upset or criticizing us or angry. Sometimes we get into situations where uh, we're really not thinking about the other person's perspective, but we're really focused on our own. And so... You know, I think every parent in the world has experienced a time when they just felt that things got a little out of control with their two-year-old uh, or their teenager. And so, the ABC technique is something that I came up with to make it easy to remember um, three basic steps when we get into an emotionally charged situation. So, the first is the hardest step, and that is to acknowledge to ourselves that we have just stepped into an emotionally difficult interaction. Sometimes we're reacting before our, our thinking brain has actually said, this is becoming difficult. So the first point is acknowledge to yourself that you've just entered into something emotionally challenging. And then one of the really important ways to Maintain empathy is to self regulate. And so the B stands for breathing. And when I say breathing, I don't just mean, you know, take a deep breath or count to 10. I mean, really slow your breathing down in a very intentional way so that you're saying to yourself, I'm breathing in to the full extent of my breath and I'm breathing out to the full extent of my breath. And when you do this, your emotional intensity will decrease, because when your breath slows significantly, your heart rate and your blood pressure slow, and also you've just moved into a more cognitive frame of mind by saying those words to yourself rather than a purely emotional frame of mind. And then the C is curiosity. The C means instead of reacting or getting defensive or flying off the handle, I'm going to be curious about the other person's perspective. Now, when we do this, it's very hard because most of us are wired to, you know, for fight or flight. But fight or flight was really developed more for when we were getting attacked in the jungle by wild animals. Most of our threats today in our civilized society are emotional threats. And so we need to remember that in most cases, people are not about to hit us or punch us, but they might be saying something that's really difficult. And in that case, we need to slow down instead of speeding up. And that technique, um, it takes practice. I'm not suggesting people will remember that and self-regulate the next time they're in a situation. But with practice, you can get there.
0: Well, I would actually encourage people, because when I read this in your book, and I realized that not only does it put you in a different state of mind, but it also lowers your blood pressure. I mean, a lot of people are trying to find ways to do that anyway. But the idea of breathing fully as opposed to just take, you know, focus on your breathing. I think that's a little different. And when I tried it and practiced it myself, I noticed myself slowing down and getting a little more um, focused on the moment and also paying attention to my breath and not thinking about whatever it was that it caused me to stop and do it. So I, I think it's something that people, you know, after the show's over or even now as you're listening, you can actually try it. And that's fully breathing in, right? And then fully breathing out. That's
4: right. And, it, you know... Some surgeons have told me that three to five breaths before a procedure and they feel completely ready. So it steadies the hands, it steadies the mind, um, and it's a tool that every one of us is walking around with every day.
0: So I want to encourage everybody, again, the book is The Empathy Effect, and there's lots of really good ideas like this one in there. I actually want to share a quick story because, I, you know, as I think about what you talk about, this show, The Emotion Roadmap, Take the Wheel and Control How You Feel, is normally a show where people are calling in and sharing emotionally charged situations that they are unable to cope with and are stuck and un- unsure how to proceed. And so I'm always in that place where I'm trying to handle a, a tough call. And one of them recently made me think of the uh, – uh, reminded me of this as I was reading a book was a father who had called up and um, it's a long story and I won't go into the whole story, but the, the end of the story was that the father and his wife had separated. I mean the father and, and um, the mother, the couple had separated and the father no longer had access to his daughter. It's a long story as to why, but the courts and his lawyer and his psychologist were all telling him that you just got to let go because it's not going to work the way you want it to work. And, as I was listening to him, I I was trying to be empathetic. I was trying to be helpful, and I'm always trying to talk about how do you deal with your own feelings and perhaps the feelings of others. And as I listened to him, I thought, well, it looks like people I'm guessing, and I, before I knew this, that you're, that the people that you're talking to are telling you that you have to let go. And that's a strategy that probably seems rational and, and makes sense to you. And he said, that's right. And I said, And this is where the emotional empathy part of it came in. But I I put myself in the father's shoes and I could hear it in his voice. And I knew that that was unacceptable to him, that he would no longer have a relationship with his 13-year-old daughter. And so what I said to him instead was I said, look, as far as as your daughter and your ability to relate to her, given the circumstance with your ex-wife, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. But I don't think you have to let go. I think what you have to believe and be passionately committed to is actually making sure that you never give up because you never fail until you stop trying. And that at some point, it might be one year, five years, 15 years from now, but your daughter's going to want to know more about who her dad really is. And based on the guy you sound like, she's going to want to have a relationship with you, and it's going to be a wonderful relationship, but it's going to be a a long time from now. But if you know that, and you know that you're never going to give up, and that's the way you see it, you might have to let go for the time being, and you can't push this. But if you know that going forward, I think that'll help you. And he was almost tearful, and then I had several callers calling afterwards. Actually, some were crying, because they all felt this guy's pain, and they all felt like the idea of never giving up was... What worked for him?
1: That's a
4: beautiful story, Chuck. I love that line. You never fail until you stop trying.
0: Right. Then it made me think about what you were talking about about acknowledging you're in, a, in a tough situation. Also, later on in the book, you mentioned that A is also about acknowledging the emotions of your own your own emotions and others' emotions. And I think that that's a big part of what I do with this emotion roadmap all the time. So I thought that was really helpful to share a story that, again, just like the, the Tanya Singer experiment, tries to demonstrate what you're talking about with, with real life um, um, activities that, that demonstrate it.
4: Well, you're also showing that just because you don't get what you want right away doesn't mean you won't get it. And if everyone you know, was saying that they need a break or that there needs to be some time out... Um, Amazing things can happen when people sort of give up on the immediate goal and look for a more distant goal. you know so I think your advice to him was be patient
0: and keep trying and don 't give up mm-hmm. right right well, well let me go let me move on to something because we talked about like uh, you know a specific here with a real life father and, and his daughter and his and his ex wife but we also in your book talk about the fact that we are consumed often, if we're paying attention to the news or the internet, with all kinds of horrific situations, whether it's starving children in Yemen or displaced people in Syria or, or people on the border trying to come into America. Um, it, it, there's, there's all kinds of things happening all the time, including so for some people, every day when they walk down the streets, if they happen to live in a t- in a city like San Francisco where there's homeless people all over the place, and you can't help but at some point feel that pain. And, and I'm wondering, and, and I, you do talk about this somewhat. When do you get saturated to the point where you you don't you see it and you experience it, but you don't feel it anymore? It- well,
4: Chuck, you're getting to you know one of the really important questions about empathy, which is can it sometimes cause personal distress? And the answer is yes, and obviously we can't, um, you know, we feel helpless around too much need and too much agony and suffering, and you're right, some people sort of shut down. When we notice that it's not bothering us anymore to pass by homeless people, um, I think it's time to sort of take a, a check on our empathy meter like, are we viewing all of these homeless people as one mass of humanity, or do we really remember that these are individuals who have really fallen on hard times? Now that I live in Boston, I'm seeing more people on the streets. And every now and then, I'll stop and talk to somebody and ask them about their story. And it's been an incredibly rewarding experience. You know, we can give money, we can give um, time, we can make eye contact and just humanize who they are, but we also can make contributions to shelters, we can write to politicians, um, and we're not going to feel like we have the energy for that every single day, but I hope that, you know, and part of your message here is the emotional roadmap. I hope we don't all become too blunted to people who, um, in many cases, you know, had maybe three strokes of bad luck and they end up without a home and without a car. And um, we can support organizations um, that exist to help the homeless. The point you're making about being emotionally overloaded um, is a really important one. We are not a limitless supply of care and compassion. And the most effective way to not become blunted to the pain and suffering of others is to not become blunted to our own needs. So many people put their needs last and they run out of steam and they get burned out. And I think this is a, an epidemic in our society today. And, um, We have to learn, whether it's through, you know, getting exercise or a meditation practice or, you know, if it's yoga for you or, you know, any kind of practice that gets you out of the everyday hustle and bustle and into a quieter place. I'm just finding that more and more people are understanding that they need some quiet time, they need to fill the tank, they need to take care of their bodies. And if we don't put that first, um, we really do run in, in, into trouble. And, you know, I think that's also a, um, a risk for, you know, for people in giving and you know, service professions like healthcare and social work and, um, and other caring professions.
0: Let me ask you a little bit about your program, Empathetics, and your company, because I know that um, when you first started out, you were in high demand and you couldn't be every place, and so you began to think of ways, how do you get this training and this really um, fantastic idea of helping to create more empathy all over the world in many different locations, particularly in healthcare where you started, but it's growing and more and more demands on your time that you've now set up a company, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your, the project-based learning that you do and your company.
4: Yes, so Empathetics was was uh, founded To meet the growing demand that healthcare institutions had to train people sort of back into the empathic uh, stance, I think it it wasn't lost on patients or healthcare leaders to realize that this new technology and the accelerated pace of healthcare was having a a challenging effect on the patient-doctor relationship. And without a strong relationship, patients are probably not very motivated to make changes or to take the doctor's recommendations. So, we had to find a way of infusing these values and these what used to be norms back into healthcare. And I developed empathy training, you know, during a fellowship at Harvard. Um, after spending a lot of time reading all about the neuroscience of empathy and really understanding how our brains connect from one person to another. And um, I developed training that was brief, and we translated it into an online um, format coupled with um, train the trainer and live workshops so that there's both a self-paced um, component to our empathetics training where people can learn on their own and and they can practice and then they can also come together with some classroom workshops that we train um, uh, trainers in, in, in the different hospitals and clinics around how to conduct those. It's been very exciting and it really is transformational when people come back to their values.
0: I, I would like to just close with this idea of self-kindness, shared humanity, and mindfulness. It's kind of a nice way you close the book out. And if you could just share a little bit about, you know, for all those people that are really caring and do show empathy, uh, empathic concern for others and are feeling a little drained at this point with all the different needy, <laughs> needy situations and people out there, how do, they, how do you take care of yourself? And if you, we'll close with that.
4: These three um, areas, self care, shared humanity, and mindfulness were really first described by Christine Neff, who's a compassion researcher. And they're so important in keeping the empathy loop alive. And that's why I included it in in my book. Self-care really is a very individual thing. We all know what makes us feel the best. And I would really encourage listeners um, to think about what they're doing to feel good and ask themselves, is this really healthy? Is this really helping me? Because sometimes overeating, overdrinking, and not exercising kind of, quote, feels good. But in the long run, what could you be doing to, like, really take charge and take control of your health and your well-being? So self-care is about behaviors and practices that will ensure your health over the long term. And of course, I've said before, it can include um, meditation, practices, um, healthy eating, exercise, walks in nature, spending time with your pet, um, being with loved ones, making time for friends and family. And, I mean, I could go on and on, but most people um, know, you know, kind of what they need, and it's really about getting those things to the top of the list.
0: Well, that's a great list.
4: And shared humanity is about self-kindness. So all of us make mistakes. We've all said things or done things that we regret. And I've seen in my own practice some people are just beating themselves up for things that happened, you know, 10 years ago or 20 years ago and to remember that we're just part of the human race. We're just human, and if we make a mistake, we acknowledge it, we apologize, and we move on. But really we have to we have to let it go. And I'm not saying to be rude or harming others and just say oh I'm going to let it go. Like if we've really done something that requires an apology, we should apologize. But to, we have to let it go at some point and say I'm just human. I made a mistake, and I need to move on. And then mindfulness is just living your life with self-awareness instead of blindly going through your life. Think about, like, what thoughts are really controlling my mind? Are they negative? You know, can I become more aware of my thinking and switch out some of those thoughts for more positive and inspiring thoughts? When I think about people, am I seeing the best in them? Or am I going to the negative? So, mindfulness gives us a chance to just observe our own mind in action and to not be judge- judging of ourselves or others, but learning to be quiet and actually look for the best in ourselves and in others.
0: Okay, well, thank you. I, I, thank you very much, Alan. I, I, I just want to close on this remark. Um, I, I've just had a chapter published called Successful Coaches Influence Emotions, Thoughts, and Behaviors, and it kind of tracks with what you just said about mindfulness and the idea that um, some, sometimes our self-talk isn't helpful. And if we want behaviors to change, we have to understand where the self-talk comes from. And if we understand it's being driven by our feelings, then we have to really look hard into understanding what what are those feelings and why are we having them. And that's being self-empathic, I think, as well, trying to understand ourselves. But I also want to leave with one other thought from a boss I had a long time ago who actually told me one time that when an executive has been demoted or lost his job, most people are afraid to call them because they're so afraid about what they're going to hear and how, how terrible the person's feeling, and they're worried about feeling some of that that disappointment. But that's the time when somebody appreciates being called and asked about the most because that's the time when they're feeling really low and feeling a loss of self-confidence. And when they're winning and they've been promoted, everybody wants to be their friend. But you'll be unique if you pick up the phone or you go and make a visit to someone who has just had something happen that took them, the, took them a, a different way, a way they didn't want to go. And so I want people just to understand how important it is to be empathic and to be really thoughtful about how other people are feeling and how you can make a difference. And I also want to thank you, Helen, for being on our, our guest for the day. And it's been wonderful talking to you again and look forward to seeing you. And, uh, and I really enjoyed reading your book. Thank you so much for that.
4: Thank you, Chuck. Thank you for your wonderful questions and and all the contributions you make um, in writing and speaking and having this show. Um, It's a really empathetic thing to do. and I'm (laughs) sure you're much appreciated.
0: Thanks so much. Bye-bye now.
4: Okay. Bye-bye.
0: In closing, I hope you find these women and their stories inspiring. And like me, I hope you have been and continue to be inspired by the women in your lives. And whenever and wherever you can, I hope you find ways to support the young girls and the women who are in your lives. And finally, I'd like to thank all of you regular listeners for tuning in. And for new listeners, I'm on the air the first and second Wednesdays of each month at 12 noon, and I hope you enjoy this show and join me again another time. Thanks, and goodbye.